All right, let me pray for us. God, we we thank you that you are the giver of life. That all life comes from you. And that in your love, you make men and women, you make people, you choose to lavish this creation with humanity. And we are honored that you've chosen us to be even that part of your creation. And Lord, I pray that we would value life the same way that you value life, that we would honor it in order to honor you. And I I do pray for the church across our country that in response to this legal change, that we would continue to do what we have always done, which is pray for people and love them and support them and do everything that we can uh, to bring the goodness of Jesus into this world. And we thank you that we get to be part of that. Lord, if there are needs here in our local community, reveal them to us that we might participate in meeting those needs. And we pray that you would continue to change hearts with the gospel of hope that comes to us through Christ. I pray this morning that as we look at your word, that you would edify us by it, that you would grow our love for you, that you would humble us, that that we would just be brought into your presence and that we would be in awe of this God that we serve. Bless this time for Christ's sake and and for your people, we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 32, so I ask you to open your Bible with me there. As Monica mentioned, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on this back table and we would love for you to have one. Today we're going to read in Genesis chapter 32 what I think is probably the strangest scene in Genesis. And that's saying a lot because there's quite a few strange scenes in Genesis But I want to remind you, as I have been doing as we've gone through Genesis, that as strange as this scene is, this is history. This is a record of events that actually occurred. Even though some of these scenes are difficult for us to wrap our minds around, the events took place precisely as they are recorded. And so in reading Genesis, we are reading a true and factual account of historical events. So as we read this, we're going to approach this just like we did last week, which we'll read a couple of verses and then I'll pause and kind of offer some commentary on it and then we'll read a little bit more and we'll get through it that way. So picking up in verse 1 of Genesis 32, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. All right, Jacob has left Laban, and now the chapter opens with him. You're like, oh man, are we going to go through this two verses at a time? We'll pick up the pace. Don't, don't worry. But the chapter opens with Jacob having another vision of angels. So if you remember back to Genesis chapter 28, uh, as Jacob was leaving the promised land and on his way to the land of Haran, to his uncle's house, he had a dream where he saw angels ascending and descending what the text said was a ladder probably more like a staircase into heaven. Well, in the second vision, he sees angels encamped nearby him as he approaches the promised land again at the intersection of the Jabbok River, which kind of runs east-west, and the Jordan River, which runs north-south on the eastern border of Israel, the eastern border of the promised land. Now, with this vision, there's no mention that Jacob is dreaming 
So I think it's fair for us to assume this is some kind of waking vision. He manages to actually see these angels encamped near where he himself will be camping. But the point of God giving Jacob this vision is so that Jacob will be reminded and he will see quite visually that God is still with him. Back in chapter 28, we've hit on this again and again. God said to Jacob, Behold, I am with you, Jacob. I will be with you wherever you go. So now four chapters of the book of Genesis later and 20 years in the life of Jacob, we see that this remains true. God is still with this man. And the vision of these angels camping near him, I think must have been a great comfort to Jacob. Because if you remember, by God's grace, Jacob just kind of escaped the clutches of his mob boss uncle. He managed to get away from Laban. And now he's walking from that difficulty into a new difficulty where he's about to be reunited with his brother who 20 years ago was quite intent on killing Jacob. And so I think Jacob is concerned that even though God brought him out of the danger with Laban, God may now abandon him as he moves into this new conflict with his brother. And so the vision of the angels reminds him God remains with him. I found myself thinking, wouldn't it be an amazing gift for us to be able to peer into the spiritual realm like this? To get a vision of what is happening in the realm of the angels around us? Because we would be able to perceive with our eyes that which we know to be true, which is that God remains with us. And what would that look like in the spiritual realm? Well, We can't do that, unfortunately, at least not with our eyes. But we can, according to God's word, actually know what is occurring in the spiritual realm. We trust with faith the words of God, particularly a promise like Hebrews 13 verse 5, where it says that God will never leave us or forsake us. Christ himself goes with us. Though we cannot see with our eyes, we trust with our hearts. We know according to God's word, that's true. Christ is with us. The God who preserves and protects Jacob throughout the difficulties of his life is the very same God who goes with us to preserve us and protect us. Pick up in verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you say to my Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. 
I think at the outset, Jacob is actually eager here to kind of address the conflict between him and Esau. I don't know about you, but some people are kind of wired where if there's relational conflict, they want to just press into it and get over it, get, get it over with, rather than kind of step around it and wait until it turns into a crisis moment. And I think Jacob belongs to this group of people where if there's going to be a messy reunion, then let's just have at it and get it over with. So he sends these messengers south down to the land of Seir in the country of Edom to seek out his brother Esau. Remember, another name for Esau is Edom. So this is kind of his kingdom, if you will. And it's interesting to note that Esau has left the promised land. Remember, the last time Jacob saw Esau, it was actually in the promised land, in the house of Isaac. But now Esau is no no longer dwelling in the land of Canaan. He has moved across the Jordan and south, which means that God has made provision for Jacob so that Jacob can enter back into the land that God has promised will be his inheritance without having to fight some kind of war with his own brother. So Jacob sends his messengers to his brother Esau with news of his wealth. And I don't think that this is boasting. (laughs) I think that this is Jacob attempting to show to his brother that he's willing to offer some kind of financial restitution in an attempt to repair the relationship. Now, considering the locations mentioned in the text, Jacob's messengers have to travel something like 50 or maybe even 100 miles here in order to deliver this message. So while Jacob is waiting around for these messengers he sent to return, probably something like at least a few days, if not several days passed. And as those days pass, the tension is certainly escalating in the heart of Jacob. How will Esau respond to this message? Will he be eager to warmly welcome Jacob back home, or will Esau still be out for blood? Will Esau be willing to reconcile the broken relationship, or will he be eager to seek vengeance on the brother who stole his blessing. And unfortunately for Jacob, the news that his messengers bring is not good news. Esau offers no communication in reply. There's no message from Esau. Instead, Jacob's servants return with just this report that Esau is hot on their heels and he comes with 400 men in his company. Now remember back to Genesis 14, Abraham defeated four kings with an army of only 318 men. So this is a pretty substantial militia, if you will. And Jacob is quite possibly in a whole heap of trouble, which is why he responds to the report the way that he does. He is greatly afraid and distressed. Jacob, who himself only has his wives, a few servants, the children, the flocks and herds, he knows immediately that it would be quite easy for Esau, if there's a conflict, to take everything from him. Just like Jacob had taken everything from Esau all those years ago when he stole the family blessing. And although Jacob saw this camp of angels, he's deeply worried. And in his worry, then he does what comes naturally to him. He plots. He puts together a crafty plan 
to minimize the potential risk, he divides his family into two different camps in the hopes that if Esau plunders one of them, then at least the other members will be able to escape while the plundering is happening. Then, as we're about to see after dividing his family, Jacob prays. And I want you to see this kind of sad piece of information here, that it's only after Jacob plots that he goes to prayer. Here's a man who, after all these years of witnessing God's constant provision and faithfulness and protection in his life, is still a man in process, isn't he? Rather than trust himself into the the good hands of this God, Yahweh, who's been with him every step of the way, Jacob first trusts himself to his own schemes. And only after putting his plan in motion, then he goes to God in prayer. And I would ask us, friends, that we would learn to do the opposite, right? It is good and right for us to plot and to make plans, to deal with life's difficulties, life's necessities. But let us first go to God in prayer. That before anything else, we would learn to trust Him and lean on Him and not lean on our own devices. Verse 9. In this prayer, then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So it is unfortunate that Jacob prays only after he kind of puts his plan in motion rather than praying before he plots. But I do think this is an exemplary prayer for us to pay attention to. Notice the structure. First, Jacob appeals to God according to the word that God gave to him. Meaning Jacob's prayer focuses not around something that he wishes or he hopes or he vaguely knows. It focuses around something that God said. His prayer is grounded in what God has declared. Second then, Jacob acknowledges that he's unworthy of all of God's kindness and provision and favor. So he comes to God with humility, not a sense of entitlement. He does ground it in God's promise, but he does not say, God, you owe me this thing. Third, he remembers and reflects on all that God has already done for him. He does not fail to remember the goodness of this God in all that he's already received. Fourth, he expresses to God what his desire is, that God would deliver him from the crisis that he finds himself in. And then finally, he kind of comes full circle. He ends the prayer by once again grounding it in what God declared, the promise that God made to him. I would say to you, this is an excellent format for prayer that you could follow. 
not in some routine, but just as a general guide. The prayer is grounded in what God has said. Another way we could say that is the prayer is grounded in God's Word. The tone is humble. It is a prayer that remembers the past goodness of God and does not forget everything that God has already done. It's an honest expression of need before God, seeking deliverance that Jacob understands only God can provide. That's where deliverance comes from. And again, it ends where it began, rooted firmly in what God has already spoken. And I will tell you that if you ask God for something that he has already promised in his word to provide, you can be absolutely certain he will provide it. If he promised, if he said that he would do it, then you can be certain he will. Now, the time frame may not be something that is guaranteed to you. If you ask for wisdom, it may take you years of reading God's word for God to answer that prayer. But God will certainly give you the wisdom you ask for. He's promised he will. And so if you read God's word and you find there promises that God makes to his people and you pray and you ask God to provide those things to you, you can be confident that God will do that. Trusting God in this way is commendable faith because it is trusting that God does according to his word. In any case, Jacob's prayer I think, does function for us as a kind of format that could guide our prayers as we seek the Lord. And when we're anxious or fearful about life, then we do well to remember that the best place to start is not plotting some plan to deal with the problem. It's to go to God in prayer. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 tells us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pick up again in verse 13. So Jacob stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed ahead of him, And he himself stayed that night in the camp. Now, after he prays, Jacob does get to work trying to figure out a plan, how to deal with this problem. And he devises this kind of second piece to his plan. One he hopes that will calm his brother Esau as he's encountering 
Jacob's wealth and his family, sending these waves of servants with gifts as Esau approaches. And it's smart, but it may not be enough. I mean, Esau could settle for the gifts, or he could come and take everything from Jacob. Now, unfortunately for Jacob, he prays this prayer, and this God who has dialogued with him throughout his life at this point says nothing in response. Apart from the angels that Jacob saw encamped nearby him, God does not speak to this man in the immediate aftermath of his prayer. And so the tension continues to escalate. Esau continues to get closer. And Jacob, I think at this point, must wonder, is God going to show up and help me? Or is, is it up to me to figure this out? And here's another principle, I think, for us as we pray. Often we pray and we ask God for things. And then in the aftermath of that prayer, we immediately go looking for a response. And I think a lot of times we're frustrated when we get no response. But we fail to realize that even before we prayed, God was already at work, wasn't he? God had already showed Jacob the camp of angels. God had already promised to Jacob that he would protect him and bring him home. What more did God need to say to this man? Nothing. God needed to say nothing else to this man. As for us, the verse we just read in Philippians 4, 7 tells us that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Whatever you are going through, bring your requests before the Lord. And the promise is that the peace of God will guard your, your heart and your mind. And Jesus has already promised that if we abide in him, then we will bear much fruit. We can anticipate that. And Jesus has already promised that nothing can separate us from his love. No power can snatch us from the hand of the Father. God has made assurances to us in his word. What more do we need him to say to us in response to our prayers? And the answer is nothing. He's already said what he intends to do. The truth is Jacob was right to pray. But long before he went to God in prayer, God was already engaged in the work that Jacob was going to ask him to do, that God would keep him safe in God's tender care. And I think it can be easy when we pray in the face of our worry and anxiety to forget all of the things that God has already promised. He's promised us his peace. He's promised us his love. He has promised to us his kingdom if we seek it. His presence. His joy in the spirit. And so in the midst of our trials and difficulties, let us never forget these things that God has already declared. He will give us. Like Jacob, we don't need to hear anything new from God. We just need to remember what God has said, and we can be certain that God will deliver on those things. Look at verse 22. This is where things get weird. The same night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, 
and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Okay, the details of verses 22 through 24 are a little tough to decipher, but I think what's going on here in this scene is that Jacob sends his family north across the river Jabbok, which runs east-west, in the opposite direction of Esau, who's coming up from the south, while Jacob remains on the south side of this river alone. And that shuffle happens during the night, after which a man comes out of nowhere and wrestles with Jacob until dawn. Now, although verse 24 calls this mysterious figure a man, we do come to understand that it's God because verse 28 implies that it is God. And in verse 30, we are told by Jacob that he saw God face to face and yet was delivered. This scene is also referenced in Hosea chapter 12, one of the minor prophets. And in Hosea 12, it says, In the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. Now that clears everything up, doesn't it? I mean, this is a mysterious figure who wrestles with Jacob. The figure is called a man. The figure is called an angel. The figure is called God. And I'm not sure that we have enough detail here to reach any kind of certainty regarding this scene. But I think that actually Jacob here is wrestling with a pre-incarnate Christ. Pre-incarnate Jesus. Incarnation meaning Jesus becomes a man. I, I can't explain how that works and I can't give you definitive evidence for that position, but that's the one that I hold. I think Jacob is actually wrestling with Jesus. And uh, there's a little detail where Jacob asks this man, hey, please tell me your name. Who are you? And Jacob gets no answer. And it reminds me of Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, which tells us that Jesus has a secret name which nobody knows. Anyway, whether or not this is Jesus before the incarnation, it is absolutely clear that Jacob is wrestling with God. That's definitive. And this might sound vaguely familiar to you, as strange as it is, because we actually saw something like this back in Genesis chapter 18. Do you remember? Abraham hosted these three mysterious men at his tent for a meal 
before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Now, however we think about this man, for Jacob, this must have been absolutely exhausting. I mean, there's a reason why like a high school wrestling match is, how long is it, like two minutes, three minutes? It's exhausting. And Jacob somehow manages to wrestle this mysterious figure through the night without getting royally demolished by this man, God, angel, Jesus incarnate. Jacob must have been a tough dude. But eventually, as the sun begins to rise, the mysterious man brings the wrestling match to a close with a simple touch of the hand to Jacob's hip, giving Jacob a serious lifelong injury, dislocating his hip in the wrestling match, but leaving an indelible impression physically upon Jacob that will go with him the rest of his life. This must have been an incredibly painful defeat. Now, I want you to remember that one possible meaning for Jacob's name is he grasps. We've used the name he cheats, but he grasps is another meaning for Jacob's name. And Jacob must have been a man of formidable strength because even with this dislocated hip, he manages to grasp onto this man, clinging to this mysterious man, refusing to let the man go until the man blesses Jacob. And so this man who is God gives Jacob a very strange blessing. He gives him a new name. I think it's representative of a new identity, really. Israel. This is where the footnotes of your Bible are helpful as you're reading them at home. What does Israel mean? It means he strives with God or he wrestles with God. But the name can also mean something like God fights. God fights. Now, probably the first meaning he strives with God is best in light of the context of the scene. Verse 28 tells us the reason for the new name because Jacob has striven with God and man and he has prevailed. But I think that the other interpretation, God fights for the name of Jacob, the name Israel, is probably better in light of the whole historical context of these people, isn't it? You know the story of Israel, hopefully. The nation of Israel is going to go on to wrestle with God. Read Exodus. Read Judges. Read First and Second Kings. Read Lamentations. Read the prophets. These are a people who strive with God. And yet also through that whole story, what do we see again and again and again? We see this God, Yahweh, always fighting, God fights on behalf of his people. They fight with God, that's true, but it's also true that God fights on their behalf. And so we might say that the name Israel means that the people of God wrestle with God, that's the history of the Old Testament, but Israel also means God fights for his people, which is also the history of the Old Testament. But the name is not the only blessing Jacob receives. He receives this physical symbol of the blessing as well. He receives a limp. How's that for a blessing? You ever prayed and asked God for a blessing and then received 
something that you were definitely not anticipating that you never would have asked for. And it takes a long time before you begin to realize, oh, I see the blessing there. For the rest of his life, Jacob's going to limp on that hip. It is going to be for him a constant reminder that the man who prevailed over Esau, the man who tricked and prevailed over Isaac, the man who prevailed over Laban, was defeated by God. God pinned him at Penuel. And so the limp is a blessing because it's a constant reminder of God's strength, which God has chosen to direct at Jacob's life, not to harm or destroy Jacob, but to direct at Jacob's life in order to bless Jacob. This is a wound that will go with Jacob the rest of his life to humble him, to make him even more dependent upon this God. And then Jacob names the place Penuel or Peniel, which means the face of God, because Jacob came face to face with God and found deliverance. Now, as we move to kind of close, let's think about the scene in light of the greater story of Scripture. This story is about Jacob, okay? Make no mistake about it. The story is about Jacob, the man who wrestles with God, who's wounded in the process, who prevails, and who limps. And what I find so interesting about this scene is where does it take place? It takes place east of the Jordan River before Jacob is permitted to enter into the promised land. God does not permit this man to cross the Jordan River to enter into the land of promise until Jacob has been defeated, humbled, given a new identity. That's Jacob's story. But as literature, we can see in here a literary device that foreshadows some other biblical realities. Jacob acts as a kind of Christ figure. Hear me on this. I would say, think about this. I would say that Jesus is Israel. Which means that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. That through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Jesus then is the fulfillment of the name given to Jacob. He strives with God or God fights. And in Jesus, both of these things come together. There's a sense in which we can say that on the cross, Jesus wrestled with God. Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God and he ends up pinned, defeated, stricken, smitten, afflicted. And yet in that very same act of crucifixion and death, Jesus, as God fights on man's behalf at the cross, God fought for man's redemption, taking the penalty of our sin, dying in our place. And so in a sense, Jacob foreshadows Jesus, who strives with God to bear the penalty of our rebellion and fights for us as God to secure our redemption. But the second way in which Jacob functions as a literary device here is that he foreshadows our own human experience of conversion. So follow me here as well. In order for you and I to enter into the promised land, in order for us to enter into the kingdom of God, we first must encounter this mysterious man, Jesus, 
And we must wrestle with the truth that He is God, that before Him we are condemned and helpless. We must understand that there is no blessing, no rescue apart from Him. None of our own devices are sufficient to redeem us. And everyone then who wrestles with these truths and ends up belonging to this God will be pinned, defeated, exhausted by the inexhaustible one, overwhelmed by the omnipotent one. Anyone who in their heart and soul truly wrestles with Jesus and in that process encounters God will come to find that they have seen God face to face and their life has been delivered. And the blessing that they will receive then is a new identity as a child of God and a lifelong limp in humility. The wonderful preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once said, what does a person look like who has truly met God? They walk with a limp. Do you know the limp I'm talking about? The limp we receive is not a wounded hip. It's a humbled heart. We become people painfully aware of our sin and our brokenness. Despite all of our efforts to strive for holiness, we continue to fall short. We become deeply in touch with our constant need. We become overwhelmed by the sheer size and weight of the debt that we owe to this Savior. We limp freed from our chains of bondage, full of a desire to ever serve the one who has set us free and always thinking that it could never be enough. We become people like the Apostle Paul who no longer boast in our greatness, the things that we have achieved, but who shuffle through this life boasting loudly in our weaknesses that have brought us to the foot of the cross. Because our weakness exalts the one who has the strength to carry us faithfully home. And so as Christians, we walk with a limp, which means that through many trials and difficulties, we make our way from the cross where we were defeated at the feet of Christ into the kingdom of God where Christ rules and reigns over our wayward hearts. And so friends, I would ask you, have you wrestled with this Jesus? Do you know what I'm describing? That experience of just being pinned down by this God whose glory is so weighty. Have you been given his name and his identity? Do you walk with this limp of humility and brokenness? God calls us to his eternal promises and eternal purposes, but we cannot be his instruments in the natural man full of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. We must encounter this Christ, be wounded and transformed by the one who redeems. And so I would call us as a church to walk with a limp and boast in that weakness. Not trusting in our own strength or our own devices, but trusting in the one who is strong. 